Hi listeners, and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Alina Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez. This is a podcast where I will be bringing you stories of murders, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. February 21st, 2001. It's Grammy Awards night in Hollywood, and 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin is getting ready for a date with Ashton Kutcher. But unfortunately, Ashley would not get to attend her date. This is the story of Michael Gargiulo, aka the Hollywood Ripper. In September of 2000, Ashley left her small town of Los Altos and headed to Los Angeles. And like so many other young people that moved to Los Angeles to chase their dream of becoming famous or to chase their dream of making it big in the music industry, Ashley had left her small town to chase her dream of being in the fashion industry. Ashley had no problems adapting to the Hollywood culture because it was known that Ashley was very warm and friendly and she just had a very embracing personality, so much so that others just gravitated towards her. And it wasn't long before Ashley enrolled herself and started to attend the LA Fashion Institute of downtown Los Angeles. And I have a fun fact. Already? Mm-hmm. What do you got? Did you know that the LA Fashion Institute of downtown Los Angeles was featured on the MTV show The Hills? Really? Mm-hmm. No, I had no idea. Yeah, this is the same school that Lauren Conrad, or AKA for those fans, LC, attended during the show. Ooh, throwback to Laguna Beach days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so fun fact. So Ashley was attending the LA Fashion Institute and she was set on making her dreams a reality. Unfortunately, Ashley would not see her dreams come to fruition. On February 22nd, 2001, at 9 a.m., the body of Ashley Ellerin is discovered in a pool of her own blood by her roommate, Jennifer DeSisto. Jennifer calls 911, and when detectives arrive at the crime scene, they were shocked by the gruesomeness of the crime scene. Detectives discovered a curling iron on top of the toilet seat, Ashley's hair dryer on the counter, and Ashley's hair still wet. It was clear to detectives that Ashley was getting ready to go out somewhere. When you say still wet, are you referring to like she just came out of the shower and her hair mm-hmm. was... Oh, wow. Yeah. Ashley was pretty much decapitated when they found her. Wow, no way. Yeah, Ashley had been stabbed on her chest, stomach, back, neck, the back of her head, and Ashley also had defensive wounds on her hands and arms. And I read that Ashley was stabbed more than 47 times. 47? 47 times. That's that's insane. Mm Mm-hmm. So the crime scene had so much blood from the floor to the walls to the ceilings. The carpet was soaked in blood. And the good thing for forensic investigators was that due to all this blood being all around the crime scene, it seemed like they had found bloody shoe prints that seemed to have been leaving the scene. But unfortunately, other than those shoe prints, there was no other evidence that was left that could tie the killer back to this crime scene. How could that be possible? I mean, for somebody to to stab another person 47 times, mm-hmm. for there to be defensive wounds, how could there be nothing? 
just the bloody shoe prints. So due to the lack of evidence and the fact that there was nothing indicating that there was any type of forced entry, detectives began to suspect that maybe Ashley knew her killer. So detectives began to question Ashley's friends. However, soon after Ashley's murder, detectives receive a call from no other than guess who? Ding, 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 Ashton (laughs) Kutcher. So Ashton, and you know, let's just call him Ashton. We shall call him Ashton. Can I call him Ashton? Mr. Kutcher? No, Ashton. I know him personally. So Ashton and Ashley have met a couple of times through friends and he was single at the time as well as she was. So Ashton wanted to get to know Ashley a little better and they had gone out on a few dates. And detectives talk to Ashton and they find out that on the night of the Grammys, Ashton and Ashley had plans to hang out around eight o'clock, okay? But Ashton calls her a couple of times and around 8.24 p.m., Ashton calls Ashley to let her know that he's running late. Ashton arrives at Ashley's house at around 10.45 p.m. And Ashton states to police that Ashley's car was outside when he got to her house and that everything looked normal. And as he was walking up to her house, he goes, knocks on the door a couple of times. He doesn't get a response. Mm -hmm. When Ashton doesn't get a response at the door, he tries to call Ashley, but she doesn't pick up. So Ashton just, you know, He's like knocking on the door. He's like looking through the window. Like there's there was like the side window. And when he does, he can see on the hardwood floor that there's something which at the time he thought it was red wine spilled on the floor. Oh, man. That's the blood, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Ugh. But he assumed that maybe someone had spilled some wine or something And Ashton thought that maybe Ashley was mad at him for being so late. I mean, come on. 10.45. Yeah, 10.45. I'd be pissed. He said 8 p.m. Anybody would be mad. (laughs) Right. But then again, you know, he was this young up-and-coming actor, so I don't know. (laughs) So he assumes, you know, Ashley must be mad at me, and that's why she isn't answering my calls or the door. So Ashton figures that... He's going to have to make it up to her somehow later. You know, he's thinking the next day, I'll just call her, make it up to her. It'll be fine. So Ashton leaves and detectives are able to verify Ashton's alibi and they're able to eliminate him as a suspect right away. After eliminating Ashton as a suspect, detectives also learned that Ashton was not the only love interest in Ashley's life. Hmm. It seemed like Ashley and her apartment manager, Mark Durbin, had a brief flame with one another. And on the day of Ashley's death, Mark had been over at her apartment. Really? Mm-hmm. So detectives obviously think, hmm, we need to talk to the smart guy because he's starting to look, you know, pretty promising as a suspect. Right. So he had access to Ashley's apartment. And Mark also had a girlfriend that he was trying to hide Ashley from. So, of course, right away, detectives search Mark's apartment, but they aren't able to find any connection to Ashley's murder. 
So soon after, Mark gets ruled out as a possible suspect. Hmm. And once again, detectives are back to square one. That is, until detectives talk to two of Ashley's close friends. And they both talk about a guy that claims to be in the AC and heating business. So Ashley's friend, Chris, describes one incident where him and Ashley got a flat tire. And when they were changing the tire, a guy came up to them. And Chris describes him as a white man or maybe Italian. And Chris said that the man offered to help with the flat tire. But Chris states that the man never actually helped. What do you mean? (laughs) Like instead, he said that Chris was just like standing there engaging in conversation with Ashley. So he was just kind of like flirting. Right. Hey, hey, let me help you out with the Yeah, tire. let me help you. But and he then this is... poor guy, Chris, is like actually doing all the work and <laughs> Ashley and him are like having a conversation. That must have been annoying for that guy. Mm-hmm. So Chris tells detectives that he recalls the man telling Ashley that his name was Mike and that he was a furnace guy. Mike the furnace guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Chris tells detectives how soon after that Mike started to come around more and more unannounced. So Chris also started telling detectives how not only was he coming around more and more unannounced, but he was also making phone calls to Ashley's house. Hmm. Was Ashley interested or did Chris really not know? She will remember she was known to be this very warm, friendly person. So she was just very inviting. She was friendly to everybody. So even if she wasn't interested, she was maybe... probably getting kind of this signal or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. So Chris also tells detectives how Mike started to show up at Ashley's parties, unannounced and uninvited. How would he actually know about him then? Who knows? Dang, that's so weird. Right. Stalker. Right. But nobody knew who or where Mike was from. So it was like he would just show up and, you know, it's a party. Like, oh, that's weird. But she's not, she wasn't the type of girl that would be rude and be like, hey, I didn't invite you. What are you doing here? You know? It's, yeah. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. He's uh, Mike, the AC heating guy. The furnace guy. So, yeah, pretty much. So because of that, detectives were at a dead stop because nobody knew anything else other than oh yeah mike the heating guy but it's so weird like they this guy's now like in this hollywood circle and mm-hmm. just showing up mm-hmm. so bizarre so i mean obviously like how you're saying like oh this random guy just shows up circle of friends you know and he's known as this mike the heating guy like detectives have nothing to go on and since obviously los angeles is known to be this you know, very transient area with a lot of sex offenders. And, you know, there's just a lot of crime in Los Angeles that it made it really hard for detectives to find this Mike guy, like between everything else that, you know, they're, they have to swift through, you know, that, but there's like, it's just a, you see a lot of transplants. A lot of folks come from outside of the state, outside of the city to live to LA because it, it brings so much attention various reasons so mm-hmm. yeah I, I could i could definitely see that mm-hmm. so because of all that like i said detectives come to a dead stop okay mm-hmm. that is until one day another one of ashley's roommates named justin tells detectives how one night he was walking home from a party 
when he spotted a truck parked outside of their house with the engine running. And Justin tells detectives that he believes that it was Mike the heating guy. Did it say Mike the furnace guy on the side? No, he did not. Oh, <laughs> I mean, did anybody else know what that guy drove? I guess he was probably not right because he would just show up. Yeah, he would just show up. So Justin also tells detectives how the following morning he woke up at 6.30 in the morning and he spotted that same truck driving by. And then a few minutes later, there's a knock on the door. And when he goes to answer the door, he tells detectives that Mike just walked right into their house. He just Just walked in? Walked right in. Justin didn't let him in. And that Mike just started to ask for Ashley right away. And Justin tells him that he needs to leave. He pretty much escorted Mike right out of the house. Like, Really? That's so bizarre. Yeah. It's just like he went to go open the door and this guy just barges in. And he's like asking for Ashley. Not like, hey, man, what's up? Just like, let me barge in. Ask for Ashley. And he's like, yeah, no, you got to go. That's so weird. And mm-hmm. you said it was early in the morning too, right? 6.30 in the morning. Yeah, no chance. Yeah. So months go by without any new leads until detectives learn something new about this Mike guy. Mm-hmm. Mark Durbin tells detectives how he noticed that Mike started to stop by again. Only this time he had changed his appearance. He was trying to go by the name of Tony now. And Mark tells detectives a very compelling story. So Mark tells detectives that this Mike guy, now going by the name of Tony. What is he now? Tony the plumber? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Told Mark that supposedly he had gotten hit by this contracting dump truck and that he had sued them for millions. So detectives... What? Yes. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Isn't it? So detectives pick out a block from the city and they run every traffic collision that happened within that block radius. And guess what? What happened? They get a hit. Really? Detectives find out that in 1999, a guy was walking his dog in the corner of Franking Avenue and Orchid Avenue. When the dog ran into traffic and got clipped by a car, the dog was fine. Okay, let's just, Mm -hmm. the dog was fine. However, the dog walker, Michael Gargiulo, starts to yell at the driver so bad that the driver like freaks out and just takes off. Hmm. Because the driver was so scared that he was going to attack her. Really? So she just flee the scene. And Michael ended up filing a police report, and that's how detectives were able to find out that this guy lived just a block and a half away from Ashley. No wonder he was always around. Mm-hmm. So detectives are able to pull a photo ID from that was collected during the report, and they start to show it all around to Ashley's friends. And that's when they discover that this guy going by the name of Tony is actually Mike, the furnace guy. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, can I just say, I know we keep on calling him that, but like, poor guy. 
to be given the nickname Mike the Furnace Guy or Mike the Heating Guy. Like, that's just not as cool as, like, Bill Nye the Science Guy, you know? Bill, Bill, Bill. <laughs> Anyways. That's a throwback. <laughs> right. Anyways, you want to know what's creepy about all this, though? I mean, the Furnace Guy is kind of creepy, don't you? I mean, when you say it like that, I guess. Here's the thing. There's a picture of Ashley with all of her close friends. And then in the picture, in the background, you can see Mike the Furnace Guy. Like, in the background. You're, really? Like, like it literally gives you chills. Like, it's just the group picture of, you know, just normal friends. And in the very background, you see this Mike the Furnace Guy, just like, creeping around, like, staring. Yes. Really? Ugh. It's so creepy. I'm, if that doesn't give you the chills, I don't know what I mean, that. I guess that can explain it. He was probably just... He was just everywhere, joining, hovering everywhere. Yeah, hovering in the background. Mm-hmm. Trying to be unnoticed, I guess. Ugh, well, no. Creepy. Clearly, he didn't do a good job, Mike the Furnace Guy. You mean Tony the Plumber. Yeah, which, by the way, so when this friend ran into him... And he was like, oh, hey, you know, Mike, he told detectives that like he had frosted tips. He had like a gold tea or something. And that he called him Mike that he was like, no, my name is Tony. And he was like, OK. No, <laughs> It'd be bro. like if I dyed my, my hair a different Tony. color and you're like, oh, hey, Lita. You're like, no, my name is Petra. Here's a so fun weird. fact for everybody. Yes, another fun fact. Alina's alias is Petra. Where she came up with that, I have no idea. But it's but better than Mike, the furnace guy. Or Tony. Or <laughs> Tony, the plumber. <laughs> <laughs> so detectives now are wanting to talk to Mike, the furnace guy. So they start looking for him, but he's nowhere to be found. That is until 2002. When a homicide detective shows up in Los Angeles from Cook County, Illinois, in search of a person of interest in a cold case that they have reopened, the 1993 murder of Trisha Picaggio. From 1993? 1993. Wow. In August of 1993, 18-year-old Trisha Picaggio had been repeatedly stabbed at her doorstep right away this sparked the interest of la detectives and cook county detectives and when la detectives ask cook county detectives who they're looking for cook county detectives make the chilling statement of michael gargiolo wow and just like ashley trisha was known to be this very friendly, ambitious girl, and Trisha had everything to look forward to. She had the rest of her life to look forward to until August 14th of 1993, when Trisha and her friends were hanging out for the last time before they all went away to different colleges. And according to Trisha's friends, Trisha decided to go home at midnight before dropping off other friends along the way. Then right when Trisha was about to walk into her home, she was viciously attacked. Oh, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. Like just right before Like the literally doorstep? you're yeah, you're oh. you're already pretty much home, okay? Trisha was stabbed in the chest, her back, her abdomen, and arms. 
Trisha had been stabbed a total of 12 times, and Cook County's detectives thought that whoever committed these murders was someone very strong because the attacker grabbed Trisha by the arm so hard that it caused a fracture on her arm, all while stabbing her with the other arm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's that's crazy. Mm-hmm. So the body of Trisha was not discovered until the following morning. And due to lack of evidence, the case went cold. Until seven years after Trisha's death, when a local Cook County detective takes a personal interest in Trisha's case, and he assigns the case to himself and his partner in hopes that a pair of fresh eyes will help the case. In 1993, when Trisha was killed, DNA was not, you know, something common or something that was obviously used how it is now in Illinois. But DNA obviously has come a long way and Cook County detectives convinced the Illinois State Crime Lab to reprocess the forensic material that was originally gathered from Trisha's body using the advanced DNA technology that we now have. And they find a unidentified male DNA profile and Cook County detectives start to re-question everybody that was in contact with Trisha on that day that she was murdered. And they start to DNA them as well, like DNA test them. And all of those DNA tests came back negative. And detectives come back to one individual that they had difficulties tracking down. And that is Michael Gargiulo. Michael lived a block away and had been a close friend of Trisha's brother. And Michael was known to be a star athlete in high school. But he soon started to get in trouble with the law for a battery incident and for breaking into a vehicle. So Michael was known to be a very hot-tempered, violent type of character when he was growing up. And in 2002, Cook County detectives were able to locate Michael in Hollywood through his brother, who was also living in Hollywood at the time. Cook County detectives were able to talk to Michael, who said that he would make himself available for a DNA swab so that he can get eliminated as a suspect in Trisha's murder. It's pretty amazing that they were able to track him down, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, from Cook County all the way to Hollywood, it mm-hmm. just seems like something that'd be very challenging to do. Mm-hmm. Well, DNA is a very powerful thing. But that's even before the DNA. Yeah. Like they're talking about just trying to find him, mm-hmm. let alone then finally get a, a swab. Well, they DNA just start re-questioning everybody. They start to reinvestigate everybody, and yeah, you know. That's how they were able to track him. I mean, he wasn't a stranger. He was friends with Trisha's brother. So obviously he knew Trisha as well. Mm-hmm. So Cook County detectives fly to Los Angeles to meet with Michael for the DNA swab. But Michael is nowhere to be found. And when he's nowhere to be found, that's when Cook County detectives go to the LAPD station and they ask for Marco Gargiulo. They, and that's when they make the shocking discovery that, wait a minute, Cook County detectives are looking for this guy? We're looking for this guy. That's crazy. And around the same time then, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow. So detectives from Cook County and LAPD discover that it's not only the same suspect that they're looking for, but the murder of both their cases were very similar to one another. 
Both the girls had been stabbed multiple times. Both happened late at night. Both had been stabbed in the chest, the neck, the back, and both victims were young, attractive, petite, and nothing was taken from the girls. There was no sexual assault from either one of the victims. And the most chilling discovery... What's that? Was that Michael lived close to both of these victims. Really? Mm-hmm. How close are we talking about? Ashley, remember, they discovered that he lived only, like, what, a block and a half? And then with um, Trisha, he also lived, like, a block away. That's just crazy. That makes me think that he was just stalking probably both of them. Mm-hmm. So LAPD got information that Michael had an apartment a block away from Beverly Hills. So when LAPD sends four detectives to pick up Michael, and when they try to approach Michael, Michael tries to run away from the detectives. The scene turned chaotic right away. Two detectives had to be taken to the hospital for treatments, but detectives were able to get Michael under arrest. But when detectives enter Michael's apartment, they find that the apartment is completely empty. Nothing but a little kitchen table with a chair. And when they enter the bedroom, they discover these creepy, scary dolls up against the walls. It seemed like instead of pictures, Michael was putting up these creepy dolls up on the wall. That is really creepy. Mm-hmm. So then, while Michael is in custody, he starts to ask some pretty incriminating questions to detectives. Like what? He started to ask, how long does DNA stay in a body? If you had a 10-year-old case that had some blood, can you get some DNA off of that? That I mean, sounds pretty really... innocent, right? Yeah, can I? Do you know the answer to that? <laughs> 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 that's pretty crazy. Obviously, that's a long time because what we've seen from previous cases, love Sam Little, goes back a long way, several years. So LAPD now have warrants to arrest Michael. So they end up taking his DNA. But because there isn't any DNA evidence in Ashley's case, LAPD ends up sending the DNA to Cook County detectives to get tested in Trisha's case. And in 2003, Michael's DNA matched the DNA cells that were found in Trisha's fingernails. However, the Cook County State Attorney's Office determines not to file any charges against Michael. Why? All because Michael's one of Michael's friends ended up coming forward and saying that him and Michael had given Trisha a ride two weeks prior to the murder. And the state attorney had provided a alternate reasoning as to why Michael's DNA was found on Trisha's fingernails. But, but that was two weeks. Right. But because she had gone into the car, the theory was that maybe somehow that's how the DNA had gone under her fingernails because she was in the car with them. So detectives didn't buy that theory because... Well, yeah, I'd hope not that's right. too long well yeah because the only dna that was found on, on trisha was michael's and no one else's yeah so, so it was imagine. like okay so where okay so you're saying that you and michael gave her a ride that's fine that's cool but your dna is nowhere on there exactly it's or just his. how about anybody else within the last two weeks I mean, why would that still, it just doesn't make any sense at all 
Yeah. And I and like I read that detectives also even asked this friend, like, well, you know, did she touch you guys? Like, you know, I don't like a hug or something. Mm-hmm. And he said no. So it's Doesn't... like, okay, how with it, you know, there's anyways. So nevertheless, the state of Illinois fails to file a murder charge against Michael in fear of charging him of murder prematurely. And just like that, Michael continues to live in Los Angeles as a free man. That is until December 1st, 2005, when El Monte Police Department receives a 911 call reporting the murder of a 32-year-old Maria Bruno. Again. Mm-hmm. So Maria Bruno was born and raised in Central America, and she immigrated to the States at a very young age. Maria was married for about seven or eight years, and she was the mother of four kids. And all four kids happened to be under five. Maria had recently separated from her husband and had moved into a new apartment. And Maria was so excited about moving into her new place, and she wanted to open up her own business. But unfortunately, her dreams wouldn't come true. That's so unfortunate. Mm-hmm. With four kids, all under five. That's, yeah, it's like there was so really little. I know. Irving Bruno had discovered the body of Maria in her new apartment. She was found on the bed, and it looked like she had been stabbed a total of 20 times. And her throat had been viciously cut. And just like Ashley's murder, there was no DNA, no fibers, no hairs. Nothing that didn't belong in that apartment. It's just, again, like it's the same MO. Mm-hmm. But how, again, how could there be no DNA? But, but what detectives end up finding is a shoe cover or like a shoe booty. You know, like when workers come to your house and they put on like those shoe like booties, the, the little covers that are disposable that you can just take off. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, they end up finding one of those. Mm-hmm. And they find it outside her apartment, almost like, you know, like leaving her apartment. Interesting. Was there any blood on there? Yeah. So that's the thing. On the bottom of the booty, there was a drop of blood that belonged to Maria. Just a drop. Just a drop. So since usually the first people that police investigate is always what? The The husband. yeah. Yeah, the husband, or in this case... Her ex-husband. Ali sheriffs end up questioning Irving since he had been the one that found Maria's body. Mm-hmm. And he was the one that made the 911 call. So police end up questioning Irving for 15 hours. Oh, man. Yeah. And they find out that even though Maria and Irving were separated, they had been out that night. Irving and Maria had spent the night together alone without the kids. They had gone out to have a few drinks, and then they ended up going back to her apartment in El Monte, where they ended up, you know, canoodling. That's the word of choice, canoodling. Okay, having relations. (laughs) And because Irving had hired a nanny to watch the kids, he said that he got up and left her apartment at 2 a.m. So he leaves the apartment to pick up the kids, And Irving tells police officers that when he picked up the kids, he went back to his place to sleep for a few hours. 
Then he drove back to Maria's apartment to take her to work because she didn't have a car. Like, she didn't drive. Okay, I see. So here's, like, kind of the odd part, okay? So Irving states that he tried calling Maria. She doesn't pick up. So he goes up to the apartment. He tries knocking the door. She doesn't answer the door. And thinking, well, maybe Maria is still sleeping or maybe she's in the shower. Irving happens to have a key to her apartment. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, you know, let me just open the apartment and walk in. But he notices that the screen window is missing. Oh. And yeah. the window is slightly open. So you know what he does? What does he do? He climbs through the window. Why? He has a key. <laughs> I know, right? That is, I was, when I was reading that and doing my research, I was like, okay, because that's normal. Dude, you have a key. Just like, use the key. Yeah, use the key. So the window's open. This looks good. Let me go there. Maybe she you told know, him it's to like never one of those, use the key unless it was emergency. <laughs> just it's just one of those things, you know, detectives, I should probably tell you, I did not have anything to do with my ex-wife's murder, but you might find my fingerprints all over the window. <laughs> what? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. You know, again, you never know how you're going to react in situations until you're in it. So maybe he wasn't thinking straight. Yeah, that's I, true. Yeah, I maybe don't he, know. Maybe he wasn't aware he forgot they had the key on. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get past that piece. What else happened? <laughs> so when he enters the apartment, he sees an empty knife packet on the floor, which he finds kind of odd, but he continues to walk through the kitchen and into Maria's room. And that's where he finds Maria stand on the bed. <sighs> Irving tells police that he did touch Maria's body before he called 911 so it was one of those like he went into shock and like was probably like trying to like wake her up you know like your body or not your body i'm sorry your brain can't process what it's seen so it's like you know what i mean yeah yeah absolutely yeah so police officers are able to rule him out as a suspect and with no other no other suspects on hand Police officers start knocking on neighbors' doors, and they all say that she was very polite, very attractive girl, very friendly. And police officers end up talking to one of Maria's friends, and Maria's friend tells them how one day Maria was getting boxes out of her car, and she was walking back to her apartment. And I guess these were like heavy boxes, and she was like struggling to carry them. So when she walked into her apartment, like she was just trying to set the box down. So when she walked in, the door was left open behind her. Right. Mm -hmm. And when she went to go put the box down, she turned around and there was a man standing in her apartment. Inside? Inside. Oh, man. Like how creepy. Like you guys always like with your butt or something, just close the door, you know? It's like like one of those rules is like never leave your car on empty like always have at least half a tank and always carry your license half a tank i mean come on i know you don't do that but hello in case of an emergency what if i know okay i'm just this is yeah so quarter tank is fine (laughs) so okay so she turns around there's a man standing in her apartment and she starts yelling at the man telling him to get out of her apartment like who are you Tony's what do you plumber. want you know like get out 
So the man ends up being one of her neighbors that lived in the apartment across the courtyard from her. So police officers try to track down this man, but they were never able to identify who this man was. And the case goes cold for two years. Two years. Two years. Then, on April 28, 2008, at 11.30 p.m., Santa Monica police officers receive a frantic 911 call. First responders arrive to the home of Michelle Murphy. It's an apartment complex that is located on Euclid Avenue. And she tells them that she has just been attacked by a man with a knife. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Michelle had been sleeping that night when her attacker climbed up to Michelle's second floor window, cuts the screen open, climbs into her home, and the attacker walks in the apartment to the door, unlocks the door so that he has a way out. Mm -hmm. Then he walked into Michelle's room, got on top of her, and started to stab Michelle in the chest. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, so sleeping. Michelle is sleeping. She is awakened by the stabbing, and Michelle starts to fight off her attacker. And all while he continues to stab her on her hand, her arm, her chest, her neck, like she's just like fighting, and he's that's making him more mad. So he's just going at it. So during the struggle, the attacker ends up cutting his hand. Michelle is able to get her feet as he cut his hand. She's Mm -hmm. able to get her feet under him and kick him on the groin. Oh, good. Yeah. So the attacker falls to the ground and then he stands up with the knife in his hand, looks at Michelle and says, I'm sorry. And he runs out the front door. I'm sorry. You know. Like, whoops. Yeah. I think I messed up. Mm Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, Michelle wasn't able to get a good look at her attacker. But the attacker, because he had cut his hand, he left a pool of blood on the floor. And not only that, but a trail of blood going down the stairs and into an alley that was across from Michelle's apartment. So it was like leaving little breadcrumbs like, hey, come get me, you know? Right. So crime scene investigators collect the blood evidence. And when they enter it into the national DNA database, they get a hit. Oh, really? The DNA is a match. A sample that was filed three years earlier in Chicago, Illinois. The Santa Monica police gets a hold of the detectives in Ashley's case to tell them what they had learned from the Cook County Police Department. So pretty much Santa Monica Police Department now sees that there was the the DNA was filed in Chicago. They get a hold of Cook County Police Department. Mm -hmm. Cook County Police Department tells them, hey, you know, you might want to talk to LAPD because we've been in contact with them. So now Santa Monica Police Department calls LAPD to tell them like, hey, we just talked to Cook County. You'll never guess what happened in our county. So they tell LAPD that the attacker for Michelle was none other than Michael Gargiulo. So obviously now there's all these detectives that are trying to build a case against Michael. And 
you know, trying to get a hold of Michael. Like now they're everybody's looking for him. Yeah, they really home down on him now. Yeah. So the Santa Monica police ends up telling LAPD the last address for Michael. And it was an apartment that was located 30 feet away from Michelle's Murphy's apartment. 30 feet. Here we mm-hmm. go. Same memo every time. Yep. So then on June 6, 2008, detectives arrest Michael Gargiulo. And they charge him with attempted murder. And his bail is set for $1.1 million. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's pretty, that's huge. Yeah. They had enough to charge Michael with Michelle's attack, but detectives knew that they needed more to tie him to Ashley's murder and Maria's murder. So detectives start to re-interview Ashley's friends. While police are re-interviewing Ashley's friends, they re-interview one of her close friends. And she reveals to them something that she never told them before. Hmm. She told detectives that she remembers how one day her and Ashley were together at Ashley's house and they were sitting there planning a party with the door locked when all of a sudden, Mike, the furnace guy, walked right into the house. What's up with this guy just walking into places? It tur- well, it turned out that he had a key to the house. Who how? knows how he even got a key, but he got a key. To Ashley's house. Yes. What's so... That? It makes no sense. This guy's a creep. So detectives show her a picture of Michael Gargiulo to see if she can identify him as Mike. Because, again, detectives are pretty sure this is the same guy, but they don't have anybody to really point him out. Because remember, nobody can now find Mike the furnace guy. Yeah. So sure enough, she points to Michael Gargiulo and says, that's Mike the heating guy. Meanwhile... The Santa Monica police detectives are able to provide a suspect's name and address that was located in the El Monte case. Mm -hmm. The same address that happened to be in the same apartment complex as Maria Bruno. Oh, so it was inside the same apartment complex. Mm -hmm. Because remember how one of Maria's friends had said that creepy guy that just walked right into her house and ended up being a neighbor from across across the courtyard. courtyard. But detectives weren't... able to like really see who that was like somehow for some reason they weren't able to track the resident of that apartment so they ended up collecting dna from michael and detectives were able to run his dna to that dna profile that had been found on that shoe cover that little booty you know the one that was found outside of maria's apartment yeah with that little single drop of blood yes Mm -hmm. so detectives went back to that apartment to see if they can find anything but the apartment had been rented out two or three times since Michael had lived there. So... Oh, that's going to be hard then. Yeah. So they go back to where Michael was staying. Okay. Right. And the apartment complex let detectives into the apartment since it was vacant. But the apartment had just been clean. Mm. So when detectives go into... Like, they're, they're walking around the apartment. And I guess the apartment had an attic. Well, when they take a peek into the attic, they find a plastic bag containing the same blue shoe, booty, cover, whatever you want to call it, that they had found at the crime scene of Maria Bruno's. You're kidding. Mm-hmm. Two or three times that apartment was rented and that booty was left there. Like that it had gone crazy. unnoticed. Mm-hmm. In yeah. the attic. Mm-hmm. Wow. So now it's like... 
they've realized that Michael had lived very close to all of these women, to Trisha, Ashley, and Maria. They all had been killed the same way. They all had been stabbed. Between the similarities in the murder, his time of residence at the time of each crime, and the matching shoe cover that was found in the apartment that he was living in at the time of Maria's murder, mm-hmm. detectives now have enough evidence to tie Michael to the murders of Ashley and Maria. About time. Yeah. So then on September 4th, 2008, L.A. prosecutors charge Michael Gargiulo with the murders of Ashley Ellerin and Maria Bruno, along with that attempted murder of Michelle Murphy. After Michael gets charged with the news of him being connected to all those three crimes, it makes national news because obviously Ashton Kutcher is now like all over the news because of Ashley and, you know, his Well, connection. yeah, I mean, he was there the the actual night of, of yeah. her murder. I mean, mm-hmm. They were going to go out on a date, which is, I, I had no idea. I mean, I've heard of, kind of vaguely heard about this, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize it was it was like that. Yeah. He saw her blood. Like, it sucks at the time. He didn't, he had no idea that was her blood. Yeah, he thought it was, it was wine. red wine. Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. So when Ashton Kutcher shows up to testify at the LA pretrial hearing, the media really starts to heat up after he testified oh, on what he saw the night of Ashley's murder. So due to the media being so interested in this case because it involved one of, you know, Hollywood's A-lister, Ashton Kutcher, there was a special that had aired on 48 Hours about Trisha Picanjo's murder. You know, the murder that took place in 1993 in Chicago? Right. And when that episode aired, a guy in New York ended up saying that he knew Michael and how they had worked together as security for a bar back when he was living in L.A. And this guy goes to police and tells them how Michael had told him he had killed a girl and left her on her doorstep back when he was living in Chicago. So he had just confessed to the murder of Trisha. Like he was like bragging about it. He was like some sort of like security or bouncer, you know, like in L.A. Right. Probably like trying to be cool or something. I don't. I don't freaking know. So with this new alleged confession that Michael had made, and along with the DNA evidence they had previously collected from Trisha's fingernails, on July 7th, 2011, Cook County's prosecutors charged Michael Gargiulo with the murder of Trisha Picaggio. Good. So on May 2nd, 2019, Michael's trial begins nearly a decade later after he kept on postponing his trial by changing lawyers multiple times then claiming he was going to represent himself and then hiring a lawyer again so because he couldn't pretty much get his stuff together it kept on getting postponed it's been getting delayed over and yeah. over again so on august 15 2019 a jury found him guilty of the two murders and attempted murder And then the jury also made the recommendation of the death sentence. Good. Mm Mm-hmm. And as of March 2020, Michael has still not been sentenced. And his lawyers have motioned for a new trial, claiming that there was tainted testimonies and that prosecution withheld evidence from them. So with Michael not 
being sentenced and with his lawyers now motioning for a new trial, this also delays Michael from being extradited to Illinois to face trial for the murder of Trisha Picasso. No one had suspected that Michael was living this double life. And you want to know why? Why? All because Michael was married and had a child. Like he was actively married? He was married. He was married, had a child. And all at the same time, he was stalking women and murdering them. So he was able to hide in plain sight because he was living a double life. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how he was able to get away with those murders for so long. And the fact that, obviously, he's just known as, like, oh, Mike the furnace guy and Mike the heating guy. Tony the plumber. Yeah. That's horrible. I mean, he was so vicious in his attacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, the yeah. amount of stab wounds, how just aggressively bad. I mean, you just mm-hmm. really, really bad attacks. Yeah. And then can you imagine now it's like that was somebody's husband. That's somebody's father. Like, it, it's hard to believe. It's it's very hard to believe, you know? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's hard to believe. The dolls hanging on the walls. Oh, yeah, the creepy... That's yes. why I thought... And then, you know, you said that he just had a, a kitchen table and a chair. And, mm-hmm. and he just doesn't add up to him having a family. But that's really bizarre. So that's where the case stands as of today. It's not fair because obviously he's delaying his own trial here and Trisha's family is still to see closure, you know, for her daughter, for their daughter. I mean, right. that's not going to happen until he gets sentenced here. So his trial and now with the motion of the new trial, like it just might be delayed even longer. Mm-hmm. So who knows when he'll get to face a jury back in Illinois. Hopefully soon. Mm-hmm. If you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover, you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at podcasttruecrimeweekly. And I would truly love it and appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review and subscribe onto Apple Podcasts. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thanks for listening. <laughs>